Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, my name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and we are back again. I have returned from Texas. Uh, good thing I have apparently returned to, to New England just in time to escape the fearsome winter weather down in Texas. Uh, I, 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 I shouldn't joke. It's totally serious to the people in Texas. Um, but anyway, no, it's fun. It was, I had a great time down in Texas. Texmoot was awesome. We had a fantastic, uh, day on Saturday and I had a good time, uh, being able to sort of catch up with people. I, I, uh, I had some, some great meetings, uh, with, uh, with folks while I was down there, a whole bunch of, uh, my Signum people, uh, including Maven herself, got to go meet. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, there's a person in Texas that I've been wanting to meet in person for a long time, though I've had many conversations online uh, uh, with him. And of course, that is Buddha, uh, Maven's parrot. So it was excellent to finally meet Buddha in the flesh. Anyway, uh, so uh, it was uh, it was great. I had a great time see, uh, catching up with some folks, and I had an, a wonderful time at Texmoot, which was excellent. And we um, uh, we even did a completely spontaneous, uh, like the idea occurred to me after I was standing at the podium, spontaneous uh, stream of my keynote address on Twitch. I don't know if you got a chance to uh, uh, to see that. It was really fun. Uh, talk actually. So if you haven't, you can still check that out on our Twitch channel in the uh, the archives, our past broadcasts. You, you should still be able to should still be able to see it there. So okay, so I think we are pretty much ready to go. One quick announcement, which is really exciting, is our next moot. So we already have our next moot officially announced and scheduled. Uh, and this is a very exciting one because this is sort of fulfilling a request we have had for a very long time. Uh, and that is a moot over in Europe. That is, we are finally leaving America uh, and uh, going over. Of course, our European friends have are so long-suffering. Uh, either staying up until the middle of the night or waking up in the middle of the night. Uh, usually, uh, of course, my schedule is almost always with my family commitments and stuff. It's almost always easier for me to broadcast. I've been broadcasting after my family's asleep for, you know, seven years now. Uh, so, you know, and that's just kind of the, the time I can get chunks of reliable time like this to broadcast. But I know it's extremely difficult uh, for the Europeans with the time difference. So I, I, I always uh, appreciate uh, their uh, persistence. And uh, anyway, so I'm really glad uh, that we are, uh, uh, we are going to uh, be able to head over there. So the date uh, for our, 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 our Brit moot, our London moot, uh, is going to be uh, uh, the 28th of April. Uh, so April 28th. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and it, it's going to be in London. Uh, you can get more information at Londonmoot, uh, dot, uh, it's Londonmoot.com, Darren, isn't it? I thought I saw, uh, Darren, our wonderful organizer here. Yes, Londonmoot.com, uh, is a page. We're going to have an event page, of course, for that also, uh, on our signumuniversity.org site. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's going to be great. So it's, uh, this just, again, like the others, one day conference, uh, uh, really inexpensive. It's going to be 30 pounds, uh, to, to attend that'll include lunch and, uh, a full day of, uh, awesome fun activities, uh, in London with us there. Yep. LondonMoo.com. Thanks, Darren. Uh, so, uh, 
Uh, so yeah, that's going to be great. So I hope that you'll be able to come. I hope that, uh, you know, as I'm speaking, I say I hope you'll be able to come. Of course, all the Europeans are sound asleep just about, right, as I was just saying. So, uh, But anyway, if you could spread the word. Uh, and of course, for those who are listening or watching this asynchronously, I'm talking to you, too. So... Um, uh, so very good. All right. So uh, that's just so that's our next thing coming up. We have uh, this will be our third new um, new moot of the year as we are, you know, this year, as I you know had mentioned before, is the year in which we are finally doing the expansion of our regional moots that I've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, so I'm excited for our third new moot. Uh, we did the Midwest, we did Texas, and now we're going over to Europe. And uh, we have some other prospects that we'll be hoping to, to continue uh, sort of cycling around uh, in America. Who knows? Maybe we even get to Aussie moot sometime, right? That would be pretty fantastic. Uh, so anyway, um, I, I uh, hope that uh, uh, to be able to catch up with a bunch of you at uh, when when our Signum moots finally come around uh, uh, near you. You know, JJ Kiwi moot is uh, is extremely uh, extremely attractive idea. I mean, there's so many possibilities, obviously, with potentials for uh, visiting movie sites and stuff. Uh, that's a trip, uh, needless to say, I've been wanting to make for a really long time. Heck, I've been wanting to go to New Zealand since before the movies originally came out. So, uh, so yeah, Kiwi Moot uh, seems like a thing that should happen. I agree. Um, so, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Oh, and Lady Shmabulok, there will certainly be a second text moot. Um, the hope is for all of our regional moots uh, to become annual events. Um, we're wanting very... I, my, my hope is that all of these, none of these, I should say, uh, will be uh, merely uh, one-shot affairs. And there certainly are active plans uh, for text moot again for next... We don't, you know, we don't have anything to announce yet. We don't have a, an official date or anything. Um, but there are certainly plans for text moot for next year, so... Yep, yep. Um, excellent, yeah. So, um, uh, and again, if you, for people who are, um, you know, interested, if, if you, if you like planning events, you know, if you would like to get involved in helping us to make a moot happen, uh, near you, we're working on a Southeast moot, Southeast, uh, America down in the Carolinas. We're working on one, uh, in the Southwest, Southern California, uh, I, I would love to do one in the Pacific Northwest. I would love to do one up here in New England in the Northeast. I would love to do one in Canada. Um, I'd love to do one uh, in New Zealand or Australia, as I said. So, um, anyway, that's um, those are those are kind of the, the the main. And I have a few leads for those, but I would love to. I'd be very interested in uh, anyone who is in one of those areas and would like to uh, uh, would like to to uh, help out. So, yeah. Anyway, all right. Um, yeah, cool. Excellent. You need one in Florida, O'Malley? Well, you know, Florida has its attractions, no question. And we'll see. I mean, of course, I don't know how many exactly we'll be able to, we'll be able to do. Um, I think that we could do probably eight to ten a year pretty, pretty pretty well. After that, it's going to be a little hard for me. My goal is to just personally to get to all of them. And uh, if we have many more than eight to ten, then it's going to get a little hard. My, my family is going to start complaining about never seeing me anymore uh, if I end up traveling much more than that. But uh, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. You know, again, right now, the goal is uh, somewhere around uh, uh, eight to ten. So, so we'll see. 
Anyway, let us move forward. So we, cause tonight, tonight, we're going to get out of the Barrow Downs. I think we may even get to the road. Uh, in fact, if we're not careful, if we don't, um, uh, if we don't uh, watch our step, we may uh, get swept away and end up all the way to the end of chapter eight. This, of course, is officially the tenth session by my count on chapter eight. We have really dug in to chapter eight here, uh, but we're about to be done and get to Bree, I think. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Tiber is pointing out that if we do that many moots, it'll also really slow down the class. And I agree. I agree, Tiber. But, you know, you got to think, though, maybe, you know, putting the brakes on our, 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 you know, wild and whirling journey through the Lord of the Rings might not be such a bad idea. Right. And we don't want to we don't want to uh, uh, get too carried away. So, uh, yeah. All right. To the East Road. Let's do it. Okay, so, where are we? So tonight's class, I titled Crossing Boundaries, as there are two different boundaries that we cross in fairly quick succession here as we are transitioning. Uh, and really, there are a bunch of different boundaries that we can think, right? Uh, that we can think of crossing. Because really, this is a significant moment. The end of Chapter 8, when we leave the Barrow Downs behind and enter into Bree, is really the beginning of a new kind of epic, a really a, a new segment of the story. As we were going through the, you know, the Old Forest and the Barrow Downs are both of them, in a sense, Shire adventures, right? Um, that is, you know, we, we, we've not really fully left the Shire behind. Those are the things, those, both of them, both the Barrow Downs and the Old Forest are, are, they, they, I mean, they're not in the Shire, obviously, right? But they, there's a sense in which they kind of belong to the Shire, if you see what I mean, right? They are, uh, they are known perils on the outskirts of the Shire. But when we cross into Bree, we've moved to a different place altogether, right? We are, uh, we have left the Shire behind and are now in foreign territory and really a new part of the story as well. Um, we're no longer just the hobbits on their own attempting to escape from the Black Riders, right? Once we get into Bree and we get to the to the events in the Prancing, pon the Prancing Pony, and of course, uh, uh, most importantly, uh, the meeting with Strider, obviously, uh, and the change that that is going to make uh, to the story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've always, uh, you know, so the, 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 we're, we're really entering what is sort of the second half of book one, right? Uh, getting up to Bree being sort of the first, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not equal halves, right? we got eight chapters for the one, uh, and only, uh, you know, com only a few chapters, uh, for this, for the second half. But as I said, this seems like a really, a really significant boundary. Uh, so, and of course there are two other boundaries that we'll cross, uh, as we go through. Um, so let's, uh, Let's move through. And JJ, I agree with you. In retrospect, I so regret how reckless I was, especially in chapter one. Good grief. What do we do? Three classes on chapter one? It's ridiculous. We should have done at least 12 minimum on chapter one and chapter two. We could still be in chapter two had I been really thorough about it. But who knows? Maybe we'll go back. But uh, we've certainly at least learned our lesson since then. All right. Um, Really cool question from uh, uh, Kyle. Kyle, I think did I see you in the chat, or I think you're here tonight. Um, really neat question. Uh, in conjunction with uh, one of those scenes from the Barrow, um, 
so he quotes this section, which I'll read in full because it's worth reading not only sort of the crucial sentence, but the sentences before and after. Yeah, Kyle's here. Great. Okay. Um, but though his fear was so great that it seemed to be part of the very darkness that was round him, he found himself as he lay, thinking about Bilbo Baggins and his stories, of their jogging along together in the lanes of the Shire, and talking about roads and adventures. There is a seed of courage hidden, often deeply it is true, in the heart of the fattest and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. Frodo was neither very fat nor very timid. Indeed, though he did not know it, Bilbo, and Gandalf, thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. He thought he had come to the end of his adventure, and a terrible end, but the thought hardened him. He found himself stiffening, as if for a final spring. He no longer felt like a helpless prey. Okay. Um... So that's the passage that uh, Kyle was particularly interested in. And he says, upon our reading of this passage, a thought occurred to me in reference to the underlined part of the power that italicized in my version, part of the passage. Did Sam write this? I wondered this because this seems like something that Sam would want to be told of Frodo more than Frodo of himself. Not to mention the fact that how could Frodo know that Bilbo and Gandalf thought him the best hobbit in the Shire if the passage says he didn't know that himself? This could also be a case where Gandalf or Bilbo told him about it later and he then wrote it down. I know there's a lot of speculation here and it could be a number of different sources, but to me in this passage, in this scenario, Sam seems to fit best as he would want these those reading the Red Book to know that Frodo was thought the best hobbit in the Shire. This begs bigger and more grand questions, however. Can we ever be certain at any point that we are reading from a specific source in The Lord of the Rings? Really great question, of course. The, uh, the, 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 the notes on Shire records that we get at the end of the prologue material in The Fellowship of the Ring does invite us, right? It does invite us to speculate, uh, to think about the provenance of this text, right? This is not just a story written by a modern person. This is a story that's been edited and translated by a modern person. Uh, and uh, we're told some about the sources of it, right? It, it, it started as Bilbo's Red Book, which Frodo was given, right? which Frodo completed. We know that Frodo wrote or revised the vast majority of the text, which is the Lord of the Rings. And then he gives it to Sam and says, you know, the, the, the last pages are for you. And we can imagine Sam acting to some extent in an editorial capacity, though we're told in the prologue there that uh, uh, we're told explicitly that Sam didn't like to change anything uh, that Frodo and Bilbo had written. Um, but anyway, okay, so um, so we've got that material. But then, of course, we know that the, there's no claim that the story that we're reading comes right from the Red Book, right? The Red Book is one of the most important sources, but it's not the direct... Uh, it's it's This is not like a direct translation from the Red Book. The Red Book itself did not survive, right? Uh, the text that it seems that this text was taken comes from the text recopied by Findegil King's writer in Gondor, right? Um, so... Pippin has a copy of the Red Book made, and he brings it with him to Gondor, and then copies are made in Gondor uh, to enter into the records of Minas Tirith, right? So that they can have uh, copies of the Book of Perianoth, um, uh, giving the account of the uh, giving the account of the War of the Ring from the Hobbit's perspective, right? So that seems to be the 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 trail through which we got this, right? Um, so, okay, what does this 
tell us, right? What does this mean? Um, so to Kyle, just to sort of start with file with Kyle's final question there, can we ever be certain at any point that we are reading from a specific source? It's hard, right? One thing that I would say that all of this editing, translating and copying and recopying uh, makes very difficult is to do anything like a sort of stylistic analysis, right? To to be able to say, well, this is, you know, Frodo's style, uh, you know, prose style versus Bilbo's prose style versus Sam's prose style. That's really tough, right? I, I don't think uh, the evidence suggests that is, you know, the, the framework that Tolkien has given us does not really, I think, invite that kind of analysis. So I think that if we if we start looking for like bits of narrator prose that kind of sounds like Sam, I think we're going to be just, I think, I think we're going to be kind of barking up the wrong tree when it comes to that. Um, uh, so that I don't think is really um, reliable. Right. Um, so then what do we have? Well, we have to remember one thing, one thing that's quite clear and quite consistent all the way through is that, this is a text that was written after the fact. There are a bunch of examples of that. So as as Kyle was pointing out, the mere fact that Frodo did not know at the time in the Barrow that Bilbo and Gandalf thought him the best hobbit in the Shire cannot be taken as proof that Frodo can't have written that, right? It doesn't prove it. Uh, now, I agree for other reasons we might think that Frodo wouldn't have written this passage as it stands, um, but... Um, uh, but but the the mere chronological fact that Frodo in the Barrow was ignorant of this fact doesn't prove anything because this is not like a contemporary okay, this is you know this is not faithfully drawn from notes made by you know Frodo at the time right um, he's writing all about this in reflection afterwards and has had plenty of time to have follow up conversations with it you know, everyone involved who's still alive at the time. So, um, you know, he's not going to have follow-up interviews with Boromir, but apart from that, most, you know, most of the characters involved are, are able to, you know, explain things to him and give him backstory that he didn't have at the time. So, um, so that kind of thing is never going to be a concern and we will see, and I'm going to be really interested to observe some moments later on, which are very explicitly after the fact, right. Which interject, um, the perspective of a later time onto events. Those are, I think, some important moments that we'll get later on. I'm not counting this as one of them, right? The mere fact that we're told this thing that Frodo didn't know at the time doesn't take us out of the frame of of this of the story, right? There will be moments that will take us entirely out of the chronological moment of the of that event in the book, right? Um, that will happen. That's not happening here. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Croker says that it sounds like something Gandalf would tell Merry and Pippin and Sam and Minas Tirith after the war ends. I could easily believe that. You know, one of those conversations that they had sitting around in Minas Tirith, right? Uh, Gandalf saying, oh, yeah, you know, Bilbo and I long thought Frodo, one, you know, the best hobbit in the Shire, right? Absolutely. So I, I certainly, Kyle, I agree with your overall um sort of premise, right? That this kind of sounds like a Samish thing to say, right? Um, and that Sam could well have heard this in a situation like that, writing conversation with Gandalf, and that Sam, one of the things that Sam might have done as editor of Frodo's work is to go back and add complimentary bits that Frodo might have left out. Like, that I can totally believe. Um, so I have, um, um, I have no problem in theory, believing that. 
do I think that we can really be certain? As Kyle asks, no, no, I don't think we can really be certain. Um, and I think that it's fun to kind of play this game and to, to, to sort of imaginatively project backwards what the different kind of provenance of different passages might be. At the end of the day, it's really all speculation and we can't really prove it, right? But I do think it's kind of a... F I guess that's all I can really say about it. It's a fun exercise, but we can't really be... I don't think we can ever really be certain. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples of things that we could say are certain. You know, like if if the if the book ever says this, it's it definitely comes from Sam and not from Frodo or Bilbo. Um, it's uh, it's tough. The one thing, of course, that we can that there there are a few passages I think that we can say with one hundred percent certainty where they come from, and that is the passages which come with one hundred percent certainty from the modern narrator. Right here, I I, I specifically the anachronisms. Right. When the narrator compares the dragon shaped firework uh, to the passing of an express train. Right. Um, you know, like a, like an express train coming out of a tunnel. No, wait, that's the Hobbit. Like the passing of an express train. Um, there's two express trains, one in the chapter one of the Hobbit, and one in chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring. Anyway, um, uh, I, 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 if I'm if I recall correctly, um, Bilbo's shriek uh, uh come you know the shriek that bursts out of him as he's listening to uh, uh to Thorin's speech in Bag End in chapter 1 bursts out of him like an express train coming out of a tunnel if i remember correctly but anyway the point is in those moments right when the narrator is is those are clearly moments where the modern narrator is speaking to us the modern reader right um and that we can point to pretty clearly there are some others uh Kyle later in the post uh suggested perhaps the thinking fox passage right see the thinking fox passage seems strikes me as less than 100% i agree that it seems tone wise to fit with the kind of thing that the modern narrator says so if we take those moments which are Obviously, which must be the modern narrator because the people within the story don't have the framework for it, right? It's, again, the modern person speaking to modern people. If we look at, like, the tone of those and then think, okay, so when the narrator is speaking kind of in that tone, it's probably the modern narrator's voice that we're hearing, right? So that's not those words that are being said in that tone aren't Frodo and, or Sam or Bilbo. Um, maybe. Right. Um, but I don't consider it impossible. Like, I consider it impossible that Sam, Frodo, or Bilbo wrote that line about the express train. Right. I don't consider it impossible that any of the three of them wrote the thinking fox moment. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> JJ and Archimago are suggesting perhaps a, a uh, uh, fox emendation. Right. That, uh, uh, that a, a, a copy of the red book was made among the foxes, uh, who, uh, who, who added that, um, entirely, entirely possible. Um, now, Tony, I agree that sort of the next, um, the next stage of, you know, we, we can't be certain, right. But it is really interesting to think about those moments, which really do describe sort of the interiority of a particular character. Tony gives two great examples. One Frodo's experience in Lothlorien, right? Um, 
Tony, I suspect you're thinking particularly of that moment, like the one in Karen Emroth, where he describes putting his hand on the, 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 the tree, right, and being aware of the living tree for the first time, and, and that attempt to describe, like, how the world seemed new, and, you know, he saw colors that were colors that he knew, but yet the, that whole passage, right, where we have this attempt to kind of verbalize the remarkable experience of being in Lothlorien for the first time, Frodo's feelings of being in Lothlorien f- for the first time. Um, anyway, so that's that. I I agree. That's a really great example. That seems like it's not that it's theoretically impossible that you know Sam could have written could have p- plugged that in, but that would seem certainly to be Frodo's um, Frodo's own point of view. The Sam passages, like the passages of Sam's perspective on things, of course, you you know, it's very noticeable how much the narrative shifts around as Frodo comes more and more under the power of the ring uh, during the final leg of the journey into Mordor, and the narrative follows Sam more and more closely uh, through that whole section. Uh, it is tempting to say for the same reason as we would say for Frodo on Karen Emroth, that's got to be Sam, right, telling us about how he felt there. Um, maybe I'm not a hundred percent sure of that one though, Tony. Or at least I should say I would be I would be less confident of that one because um, I'm thinking of the state of the book when Frodo hands it to Sam. Right? Um, why you've nearly finished it? Uh, uh, Sam says makes it hard for me to and then and and Frodo saying the last pages are for you makes it kind of hard for me to imagine that Frodo stopped before he got to Mount Doom right I mean conceivably that would fit the description of you've nearly finished it um but um but anyway you know uh, those it doesn't mean that those couldn't have been very heavily influenced right like for instance potentially Frodo attempting faithfully to reproduce the things that that Sam has told him, right? Anyway, lots of speculation uh, and uh, 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 lots of fun doing it. But as I said, I think there's very little that we can certainly prove, but it is fun to do, right? And uh, Kyle, exactly on the principles that you're describing here, thinking about moments like this, um, because I agree that although it's not chronologically impossible, uh, that Frodo could have come to know that and said this, it does seem unlikely that Frodo would put in that bit, right? Um, would choose to interject that. Uh, indeed, though he did not know it, Bilbo and Gandalf had thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. Um, and it's delightful to imagine that being one of the editorial changes that, that Sam made. So, um, Anyway, yeah, and fourth thought was that's exactly what I was thinking. The moments of describing Sam's heroism uh, in book six seem to me almost too heroic to have likely come from Sam, right? Um, I've got to think that the description of Sam's feelings and actions as they crossed Mordor, had Sam written it, I would think it would probably be a little bit, um, a little bit um, less about him and more about. Frodo's sufferings, right? Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, but now let's uh, let's move on to passages because I got ten passages to cover before we finish chapter eight. So let's see what we can do. Um, 
It was still fairly early by the sun, something between nine and ten, and the hobbits turned their minds to food. Their last meal had been lunch beside the standing stone the day before. They breakfasted now off the remainder of Tom's provisions, meant for their supper, with additions that Tom had brought with him. It was not a large meal, considering hobbits and the circumstances, but they felt much better for it. While they were eating, Tom went up to the mound and looked through the treasures. Most of these he made into a pile that glistered and sparkled on the grass. He bade them lie there, free to all finders, birds, beasts, elves, or men, and all kindly creatures. For so the spell of the mound should be broken and scattered, and no white ever come back to it. He chose for himself from the pile a brooch set with blue stones, many shaded like flax flowers or the wings of blue butterflies. He looked long at it, as if, it stir as if stirred by some memory, shaking his head, and saying at last, "'Here's a pretty toy for Tom and for his lady. Fair was she who long ago wore this on her shoulder. Goldberry shall wear it now, and we will not forget her.'" All right. Um... So what do we see here, right? Um, it's, first of all, just really fun to think about. The, notice the, how the text is inviting us to recall the, um, the, the previous meal, right? So we have the ill-advised lunch break, right, uh, at the Standing Stone the day before, which led to disaster. This was the hobbits apparently being a little bit too overconfident, a little bit too complacent. The narrator asking us, and by the way, for the record, I think that's the modern narrator, uh, and neither Frodo nor Sam nor Bilbo, uh, saying, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, that, you know, lying under the sun, right? But uh, what was enough to explain what happened, right? That sort of semi rhetorical uh, question, right? Um, I, I, that I, I suspect that of being the modern narrator who's supposed to be saying, supposed to be adding that. Um, but, um, but anyway, the, it's it's nevertheless seems to be made fairly clear that they've been hoodwinked, right? They've been they've been fooled, they've been entrapped, they've been they have they fall under the spell, uh, the dreadful spells of the Barrowites at that point. Um, but they left themselves open to it, right? Had they just pushed on, uh, had they not stopped and you know propped themselves up against? I'm going to take a nap against you know, one of these sinister standing stones, you know, they could have maybe played that a little bit better, right? Um, but, uh, but anyway, we have that juxtaposed with their breakfast here. So here we are actually on the site of the barrow, like they're right next to the treasure, right? So, so we've come out of the barrow where we've just been, uh, uh, held prisoner, right? Nearly killed, uh, cast under spells, we're still standing on the barrow mound in the middle of the barrow, uh, uh, in the middle of the barrows, um, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stop and have another picnic here, right? Now, of course, they're with Tom Bombadil. What could happen, right? Um, but uh, but it's a lovely kind of juxtaposition, the kind of inappropriate carelessness that they showed the day before versus now the actual. Um, sort of they they are carefree right they have been set free from all of their cares and so can perfectly well uh, relax 
Uh, fear no morning noises, says JJ. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, cool. Um, Ambrosius Aurelianus. Um, but, oh, and I hope Megan said hi for me. I, uh, uh, and a friend of yours came to text moot and uh, uh, mentioned you. Uh, wasn't it Megan? I think it was Megan. I met so many people, I might have gotten that name wrong. Uh, but I think, I thought it was. Anyway, uh, I, I definitely met one of your people uh, at uh, at TextMood. Um, oh, Augusta. It was Augusta Hardy. Right, of course. Great. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed her paper, by the way. Um, okay, anyway, so yes, Ambrosius Aurelianus says that it's fascinating what Tom does with the treasures. Um we know that he has no personal use for them, but he just leaves them out for anyone, except he can apparently cast a spell that only lets kindly creatures find them. Yeah, that is really uh, um, that is really an interesting uh, note, right? Free to all finders, and I really like that line too, uh, Stephanie. Uh, free to all finders, birds, beasts, elves, or men, and all kindly creatures. Um, yeah, uh, it it it. You know, Arthur, I do think that that's uh, that 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 does seem it does sound almost like a spell in that way. Right. Like no unkindly creature is going to find because conceivably, right. The the Barrowite from the next mound who, you know, maybe has been like, uh, you know, uh, envying the treasure of his next door neighbor for a while is going to just like add to his hoard and make himself stronger or something if that's how it works. Um, So he's making sure none but kindly creatures are going to find this. That, that, That does seem to me the implication, right? I mean, at the very least, it's being left open for all kindly creatures, but uh, but I do like that sort of indirect implication um, that only, that it it is open to the finding only of the kindly. Um, for so the spell of the mound should be broken and scattered and no white ever come back to it. Um, and that's exactly the, the thing that makes me think that this is an act of, it, it, if it's not, you know, sort of in this sense a spell, right? Uh, by Tom, it's at least a counterspell, right? Um, it is part of the breaking of the power uh, of uh, of the the white. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, and Harneth, I you know thinks there's a, a clue here that Barrow Whites are attracted to sparkly treasures. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. They do seem to be. I think that we do get that. Uh, we do get that hint here. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Tony uh, is uh, you know saying that whites are dragonish in this way. It, it would seem so, um, but I wonder. Right? That is one of the things about dragon treasure is sort of circular, right? Dragon sickness is kind of circular. That is to say, we all remember, of course, that when a dragon has brooded over a treasure for a long time, he confers this negative spell upon it, right? Um, That it's dangerous, dragon treasure of that kind. It can can infect you. Um, And so it makes you dragonish when you come to it. But of course, it works the other way too, right? If you have dragonish feelings towards money, you make, I mean, remember that's how dragons come about in Norse mythology. It's where Fafnir came from, right? Was his, it starts with his dragonish feelings towards a pile of treasure. Uh, and then he, uh, um, 
and that's that's how the, he becomes a dragon. Uh, so, um, so yeah, Tony exactly. Tony says it's, it's break exactly what we see going on here is the breaking of a spell like that. So exactly, Tony. I mean, I, I'm a little bit less clear of exactly what the sort of cause and effect is with the Barrel Whites, right? Um, if treasure makes you into a dragon and then being a dragon infects the treasure, um, how does that, does that work the same way with Barrel Whites, right? Does, uh, uh, the, the, the treasure is obviously part uh, of the spell, part of the, um, what's the, the phrase here? The spell of the mound, right? Um, part of the spell of the mound is, is, is contained in the treasure itself. Does that mean that the treasure caused it in this way? Again, think of the, the kinds of things that treasures can cause in Tolkien's poem, uh, The Horde, right? It's not exactly the same. We don't have undead there. It's more of a dragonish thing, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, good. Um, let's see. Yeah, JJ says, "Remember Eustace exactly with with the with the the dragon cycle, right?" Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I agree, Tillian, that it would make sense that objects of treasure, which can can which can, you know produce greed and corruption would be attractive to dark spirits. Yes, I agree. The question is, do they make them that way, right? Uh, like dragons do. We don't really know exactly. Um, <laughs> Kyle is wondering if a white would be turned into a white dragon after an age. Yeah, if you have an un like the the creature he contemplates the treasure long enough and becomes a becomes an undead dragon, oh like that would ever happen. Right. Uh <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Right. Uh we don't have we, we don't have any 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 real evidence for that kind of thing. Um but um uh, yeah, yeah. Matt says the the treasure going into the barrow is a place where it does no good for anyone. Uh, much as Beowulf says, the treasure he wins will do his people good. Right, the treasure he claims from the dragon's hoard, right? Um, in a barrow with him, it does no one good. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, Matt, that leads... I mean, of course, why is there treasure in the barrow in the first place, right? Because people buried it with the dude. It's not like the... A, you know, the, a dragon presumably has built up its horde through, you know, uh, rampageous actions, right? It's gathered its horde by killing folks and collecting, uh, collecting treasure uh, over a period of time. Um, the whites have presumably not done that, right? Um, the whites... What they inherited their hordes, right? Uh, that is presumably the treasure in the barrows was b deliberately buried with the dead folks, right? Um, so, because that's part of the it's part of the tradition. I mean, it's 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 to me kind of an interesting note um, in uh, in Beowulf even about that question of the treasure doing doing good, right? Uh, because of course we start the poem Beowulf right with a description of the funeral boat of shield chafing right and all the treasure that was sent off with him um and you know one is one is uh inclined to wonder what good was that treasure doing to anyone other than i guess it must have landed somewhere um yeah yeah um 
But anyway. Uh, yeah, good. Anyhow, uh, whether the treasure was itself instrumental in the curse, it is clearly it's part of the breaking the spell of the mound, right? If the treasure is dispersed, no white can come and live there again. So it seems that the treasure does create some kind of necessary condition, right? Uh, for uh, for the whites to live there or to have power over the uh, over the barrow, and that's an interesting kind of thought, right? Hey, this would be a great paper topic, wouldn't it? For somebody to for somebody to give it a moot, think about compare and contrast, right? Compare and contrast the relationship between treasure, barrow white treasure, and the and the barrows and the barrow whites, right? And dragon treasure. That would be really interesting. That would be really interesting. Um, Erocheb points out that if the white spell is to bring everything down into its darkness and coldness, scattering the treasure out to be used only by those living under the sun opposes that spell. That's certainly true. Um, there is a kind of reversal here, right? How the treasure was... The, the hobbits were adorned with the treasure as they were being drawn down into the deathliness, right? So in as much as the treasure is the accoutrements of funeral, right? It becomes part of the death ritual. And so now if it's going to be uh, used by kindly creatures, uh, you know, in this kind of dynamic living way under the sun, uh, that creates a significant change, right? A significant difference. Um, and therefore sort of reverses things. That makes that makes sense. Um, yeah, cool. Um, but then, of course, we have the Goldberry touch. And somebody, I forget who it was now, it was a while back, Fourth Dauntless maybe, uh, was saying that uh, he loves the fact that it's, uh, it's a blue, um, a brooch with blue stones, right? Because blue is Tom's color. Right, uh, and thinking about the ways in which when they when they put on their fancy dress for dinner on the second night, um, you know when Tom Bombadil comes in uh, dressed in green like Goldberry was wearing green before, but she's put aside her green dress and she's wearing white now, uh, white and silver, and uh, he's now wearing green, though th- with still some blue, right? Uh, so that he is bringing her a brooch. That's in. So now she's going to be wearing a brooch with his color, just like he was wearing clothes that were in, you know, her color from before. Um, it's uh, it's it, it it is all, all kind of adorable, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and oh, by the way, yes, Tony, I think that that connection back to the the tombs of the Numenorians and of the Gondorians, right? How, you know, we had the same, we, we got into the same tomb difficulty uh, in the, uh, the, the, the the days of the waning of Gondor uh, in the Third Age as well. So, um, so yeah, thinking about the, the Barrow treasure in conjunction with that, that would be, that would be a good way to approach that paper topic. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, Stephanie, as you're pointing out, the with the flowery associations with uh, uh, with Goldberry, it is interesting that we get, you know, a brooch set with blue stones, many shaded like flax flowers or the wings of blue butterflies, right? Those comparisons, uh, which is really interesting, almost backwards, right? Like if we had met flax flowers or blue butterflies, um, 
one might have attempted to describe the blue butterflies by saying that their their uh you know their wings you know uh shone like blue gems in the sunlight right uh and now we're going the other way around um here is a pretty toy interesting word isn't it for tom and for his lady fair was she who long ago wore this on her shoulder Goldberry shall wear it now, and we will not forget her. Now, I agree with several of you who have said that this is an enormously tantalizing line. It certainly is. Um, We know, of course, that Tom has a a great wealth of memory spanning back millennia and millennia in this spot, and we were shown glimpses of that, right? The hobbits are given the sort of enchanted glimpses of Tom's memory that we see uh, in his... uh, um, uh, in in you know in his talk there uh, during Goldberry's washing day, um, and this seems to be a reference. I mean, I I can't. Um, Gallandar is asking, does Tom know the woman who originally wore the brooch? Or is he perhaps just thinking about the impermanence of mortal things in general? I think he may be thinking about the impermanence of mortal things, but I think that he is implying that they knew the woman herself. Um, and it's that's a, another thing that's kind of cool, right? It's not I, we, right? Goldberry shall wear it now and we will not forget her. Does he mean that the two of them both knew her, right? Or that the two of them will remember together? because he took the brooch and she's wearing it, right? Goldberry, she, Goldberry, is wearing it. And so the two of them uh, will uh, will know them. No, I mean, I have always understood that line to say that they're not going to forget her specifically, right? Um, that he knows the person, uh, the the woman who, who wore the brooch, right? Who was she? We don't know, right? Some lady from Cardolan, probably, right? Maybe from even pre-Cardolan? That seems possible. There are probably treasures uh, here still from the people who lived in the Barrow Downs and who originally made the Barrows before the men of Cardolan took refuge here. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I I do suspect uh, very strongly that he uh, he knew. I mean, fair was she who long ago wore this on her shoulder. That's very specific, right? Um, uh, and uh, yeah, Tony, I also like to think that whoever this was, whoever it was who wore this, you know, once came to vi- once enjoyed the hospitality of the house of Tom Bombadil. Right. Um, that would be. Uh, fun to imagine. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, equal footing with Farmer Maggot, JJ. Exactly. Exactly. Um yeah, good. Good. Um, yeah, Matt, it is a really interesting connection. Matt uh, DeForest is, is sort of wanting to think about this reference to the, you know, this, this, this heirloom, this memory um, of this other lady who is gone uh, and thinking about Mary's memory, right? When he wakes up and he has the memory of being stabbed in the heart. Um, we have these two sort of memory relics, right? of that time, assuming that the lady in question is from that same time. She was a lady of Cardolan, which seems 
to me likely even just because of the jeweled brooch, right? That kind of seems like an Arnorian thing. I mean, maybe the people who lived there previously, the more ancient uh, race of men, had this kind of jeweled brooch, but that doesn't seem hugely likely. It seems more likely that it was Arnorian. Anyway, um, so we have, on the one hand, the, the, the wistfully, but it seems fondly recalled memory of Tom on the one hand, and then the painful, uh, horrifying memory, which has like been obtruded upon Mary, right? Um, in which he was almost entrapped, perhaps, um, or at least with which he was afflicted without his own choice, right? Um, so I, I agree that that is sort of an interesting connection there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Valoria is wondering if the, um, the, his comment about remembering her when, uh, Goldberry wears the brooch is almost a, a kind of rebuke right? A rebuke of the burying the treasures in the barrows, right? To say that you know, maybe there are better ways of, uh, you know, commemorating folks than burying treasures with them uselessly in death. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, see, I don't know, Fourth Dauntless. Uh, is asking, is it reasonable to guess that the lady who wore the brooch was the spouse of the man whose memory Mary received, um, since it seems that perhaps they were buried together? Uh, that seems plausible, um, but I wouldn't think necessary. As, for instance, it could just as well be his mom or grandmother, right? I mean, it could be a family barrow, in other words. Uh, and so it could it could be his sister right? You know, aunt, who knows? Um, it does seem that it, if, if this woman was in fact a Cardolan woman, uh, it, one would think that she was connected to him, related to him in some way. Um, but, uh, I'm not really sure about, uh, how confident we could be that they were married, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Vince, it could be just a woman of the court, conceivably. Um, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think... Uh, it seems to me she was likely to have been a person of importance, but... Um, yeah, Finn says, wouldn't anything of worth to a mortal be a toy to Tom? Uh, he treated even the ring itself as a toy. That's a, that is a good thing to remember here, right? Toy, I think, suggests certainly whatever else it suggests. It suggests he doesn't take this thing too seriously, right? Um, that is, he is not taking it because he values it in itself, right? Tom is not picking the most valuable thing out of the pile and saying like, ah, like I shall take this home and add this to my hoard, right? That's obviously not what's happening. And his characterization of it as a toy um, certainly uh, points to that, right? And yes, yeah, you're certainly right, Finn. The, uh, the ring shows the obvious uh, sort of extremity of that viewpoint, right? All right, let's keep going. For each of the hobbits, he chose a dagger, long, leaf-shaped, and keen, of marvelous workmanship, damasked with serpent forms in red and gold. 
They gleamed as he drew them from their black sheaths, wrought of some strange metal, light and strong, and set with many fiery stones. Whether by some virtue in these sheaths, or because of the spell that lay on the mound, the blade seemed untouched by time, unrusted, sharp, glittering in the sun. "'Old knives are long enough as swords for hobbit people,' he said. "'Sharp blades are good to have if shire folk go wandering, east, south, or far away, into dark and danger.' Then he told them that these blades were forged many long years ago by men of Westerness. They were foes of the Dark Lord, but they were overcome by the evil king of Karndum in the land of Angmar. Um, by the way, the, the explicitly Arnorian provenance of the swords is another thing that leads me to think that the treasure is by and large Arnorian, and so that it would it's almost certainly a Cardolan woman uh, that Tom is remembering there. Um, so... Okay. Um, first, Tom picks the brooch, right, for himself and for Goldberry. Notice that Tom does not give the hobbits their choice, right? He doesn't tell them to go and pick something. He takes things for them, right? He takes these swords and distributes them among them, uh, so that they own, they receive their barrow treasure, not through their own choosing, not because of their own taking, right? But as a gift, as a gift from Tom. That strikes me as an important thing, right? Um, I think that that's uh, quite crucial. Had they chosen something and taken it because they wanted it, right? Um, that might have been bad. That might have led to trouble. Who knows what kind of trouble that would have led to, right? Um, uh, Alia Eru says, Is Tom foresighted as certainly uh, these blades that they are being given are going to, in fact, be very useful? Um, notice Tom only points to the general wisdom of the thing, right? Sharp blades are good to have if shire folk go wandering. Yeah, okay, sure. Why not go armed if you're going to adventure through really dangerous territory? Seems like a good general piece of wisdom uh, that they might do well to heed. So one could say that it needn't be any more than that. Um, but of course, I don't think one need be shy about uh, ascribing a certain amount of foresight to Tom Bombadil, right? Uh my guess is that over the years he's picked up on some on certain patterns in the great music, right? Uh, and uh, may have many occasions on which he comes to a moment and says, "Oh, I've heard this one before, right? I I I have a feeling I know how this is going to go." Um, so uh, so yeah, and Tony, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think that he's well aware of the virtue that is laid on these blades and knows, as we will see, right, these blades are particularly effective against, you know, the Witch King of Hangmar, right? So, I mean, the, 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 these are especially useful swords to have in fighting against the Nazgul, um, whom whom he know who, you know, who he knows are pursuing them. So uh, that, I think, is, um, is, is important, right, that he sees... Um, he he sees that they may need them, right? And so again, he is choosing on their behalf, and he's choosing wisely in ways that perhaps they might not. Um, 
Of course, I can't help but remember Sam's chucking away his crown and rings and stuff, right? He's got the, here he's got like the, you know, the the wealth of a nation adorning him. Uh, Certainly more money than possibly the entire Gamgee family line has ever had all put together. Uh, And here he's just chucking it away on the grass without a second thought. Um, And there's, and that's one of the reasons why Sam is awesome, right? Um, But again, the question of on what basis would they choose if they were allowed to choose their own one piece of treasure, it never comes to that, right? He chooses on their behalf and it seems chooses wisely. Um, But yes, thanks for the reminder. Um, Let's see who. uh, Oh yes. Finn again um, was pointing out, of course, the the reference to the fact that, um, you know, fighting is not something that occurred to any of them as one of the adventures that they would be having, right? Um, really interesting, at the very least, a sort of a testimony to their naivete, right? A testimony to the, their parochial lives, that even though they've been thinking about going out on adventures, it never occurred to them that combat might be a thing that they'd end up having to do, right? Um, so yes, Croker, they are exactly like the dwarves in The Hobbit, blithely adventuring unarmed, as Thorin and company obviously are. Uh, the only weapons that Thorin and company carry are uh, Orchrist. Well, I mean, I was going to say Orchrist and Glamdring, though, of course, Gandalf gets that one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um... And yeah, Galandar is emphasizing again the use of the usefulness of the knives that he gives them, you know, the blades that he gives them. Again, the usefulness as compared to the uh the uselessness of the treasure just lying there under the ground, right? As it was doing nobody any good before. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Cool. Good. Um Let's keep going. Few now remember them, Tom murmured, yet still some go wandering, sons of forgotten kings walking in loneliness, guarding from evil folk from evil things, folk that are heedless. The hobbits did not understand his words, but as he spoke they had a vision, as it were, of a great expanse of years behind them, like a vast shadowy plain, over which there strode shapes of men, tall and grim with bright swords, and last came one with a star on his brow. Then the vision faded, and they were back in the sunlit world. It was time to start again. They made ready, packing their bags and lading their ponies, their new weapons they hung on their leather belts under their jackets, feeling them very awkward, and wondering if they would be of any use. Fighting had not before occurred to any of them as one of the adventures which in which their flight would land them. Notice that, in which their flight would land them. That's how they characterized their adventure, right? They are running away, right? Um... Gallantly chickening out. That is the, that is, that's what they're doing, right? That's, that's how they see their adventure. We are fleeing from pursuit. Um, they're not looking for, they're not looking for, for a fight. They're not looking for that. Again, doesn't even occur to them. Right. Um, notice Tom's segue, right? Just looking back up there briefly for a second. It starts with the knives, right? With the blades, um, made long years ago by the men of Westerness. So we have, he has recalled the war of the men of Westerness with the evil king of Karndum in the land of Angmar, 
right? And then he segues from that to say, few now remember them, yet still some go wandering. His pointing to the rangers, right? Uh, and then they have this vision. Do I think this vision comes from... Uh, do I think this vision comes from Tom? Yes, definitely. And I say definitely uh, because it's so much like the visions that they had under the influence of his talk um, in the evening of Goldberry's washing day, right? So uh, the way in which Tom is capable of making them see the stuff that he's talking about, this seems to be just like that. Right. Um, so he's talking here about sons of forgotten kings walking in loneliness, guarding from evil things, folk that are heedless. And then they have a vision of that. Right. A great expanse of years, like a vast shadowy plain and the shapes of men striding around on it, tall and grim with bright swords. Uh, and then at last one came with a star on his brow. OK, so um yeah, that's really interesting. Fourth Dauntless says, "Is the man with the star on his brow Elendil or Aragorn? Are we are we are, are we looking backwards or forwards?" Right. Great question. Um, I actually love the fact that we it could be either one. Right. Um, if you look backwards, it's Elendil. If you look forwards, it's Aragorn. Right. And the point is that, of course, Aragorn is the return of the king. Right. So. Uh, uh, Aragorn is Elendil, right? In a sense, right? Um, uh, yeah, so uh, so anyway, that, that combination, right? That connection between Aragorn and Elendil, I think, is uh, is fun. I certainly think it, that it, it is primarily Aragorn, but I, I do think, fourth on less, that it's well-remembered, right? Um, that if he is uh, looking backward, because, of course, as fourth Dauntless, as is implied by fourth Dauntless's question, recall Tom Bombadil's talk went backwards before, right? He started with contemporary stories and then went back and back and back. So that Tom Bombadil's stories proceed in a backwardsly direction, we have precedent for that, right? So that's uh, certainly by no means impossible at the very least. Um, and uh, anyway, yeah, so uh, Tony asks, do Tom and Aragorn know each other? Well, Tom recognizes or rather Aragorn recognizes Tom, right? We don't have any, I don't think Aragorn ever makes any reference to interactions with Tom Bombadil. Um, but he is neither surprised nor puzzled by who is the, you know, the funny guy in the brightly colored clothing uh, with the fat pony that they're talking to, right? He, he sees them talking and says, I, uh, you know, I don't need to repeat what they said to old Bombadil, right? As people say in the next chapter. Um, and yes, Finn, even the reference to old Bombadil suggests that he's a familiar figure, right? Um, if not a personal friend, it could be a personal friend, but even if not a personal friend, at least a familiar figure, right? Um, but anyhow, um, so yes, I do think that it is Aragorn now back to the question we were asking before about foresight, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Do I think Tom has foresight? Sure do. <laughs> sure do. Right. Why else would he be showing them this? Right. Why else would he even be getting this? Um, this reference to, uh, the, I mean, it's like he's preparing them, right? Uh, this is a, a rather pointed digression, isn't it? Uh, let me introduce you to the concept of the Rangers, right? To the, to the, to the vague fact that, uh, 
uh, just, you know, FYI, there exist still people who are the sons of forgotten kings, right? Who uh, are uh, walking in loneliness, guarding from evil things, folk that are heedless. I uh, just want to let you know that's a thing, okay? That's That happens, uh, and it may or may not become relevant to you sort of soon, right? Um, you know, I think of um, uh, the question that Frodo is going to ask of Gandalf, right? When Frodo's going to be all surprised, right? Um, you mean to say that Aragorn is one of the old kings? I thought he was only a ranger, right? And we're going to get that in uh, in many, many meetings, right? Um, at the beginning of book two. And, you know, it's like, come on, Frodo. Like, you've been missing this boat that whole time, right? Bombadil, didn't you listen to... Uh, uh, you know, I feel like uh, it's like Thorin in chapter one of The Hobbit, right? Um, you know, have you not heard our song, right? Uh, when he says that to Bilbo and Bilbo wants everything laid out plain and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, plain and square. Anyway, um, you know, he wants everything in prose. Bombadil could say, hey, didn't you? I told you. I gave you a vision of this, right? You should have picked up on that a little bit quicker, Frodo. Um. Yeah, anyway. Um, and yet, Tony, I agree. Even if he d- is not personally known to Bombadil, Aragorn would know of Bombadil from Gandalf, certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe even the son- sons of Elrond would probably have met him, right? You'd think. Elrond says he hasn't met him for a long time, but that's just because Elrond hasn't left Rivendell in forever. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um Yeah, don't you know my name yet? Exactly, exactly. All right. At last they set off. They led their ponies down the hill, and then mounting, they trotted quickly along the valley. They looked back and saw the top of the old mound on the hill, and from it the sunlight on the gold went up like a yellow flame. Then they turned a shoulder of the downs, and it was hidden from view. Though Frodo looked about him on every side, he saw no sign of the great stone standing like a gate, and before long they came to the northern gap and rode swiftly through, and the land fell away before them. It was a merry journey, with Tom Bombadil trotting gaily beside them, or before them, on Fatty Lumpkin, who could move much faster than his girth promised. Tom sang most of the time, but it was chiefly nonsense, or else perhaps a strange language unknown to the hobbits, an ancient language, whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight." one of my favorite sentences of this chapter. Um, but focusing on the first bit first, uh, I, I, I love that last sentence so much that I think I pay too much attention to that and miss the description in that, in the beginning of that first paragraph. Do you notice that? Um, they looked back and saw the top of the old mound on the hill. So they look back and see the mound that they left, the mound in which they were imprisoned. And what do they see? And from it, the sunlight on the gold went up like a yellow flame. That's a remarkable image, right? This is not just like, and they could still just catch the glint of sunlight shining on gold things in the grass, right? Um, What you might expect to see is like sparkles from a distance, right? If you're seeing the sun shining on the treasure, but that's not what they see. They see the sunlight on the gold going up like a yellow flame, right? That's, I think, pretty remarkable, right? Um, 
remember the whole sunning of the treasure thing that we were talking about at the beginning that it seemed to be part of the breaking of the uh, part of the breaking of of the spell I I don't think I, know, I see you guys are wanting to talk about Tom's language again we'll get to it I, I definitely want to talk about that um, but I, I don't want to leave this behind because I think this is that's an it suggests to me that something else is happening there Right, that they're seeing. There's, there's no. I don't see any normal, like naturalistic explanation for why the sun should be going up like a yellow flame off of the gold. Right, especially when we know that Tom was spreading it out under the sun in order to accomplish something. Right, in order to help to break that, to break that spell. Um. So. Uh, it does call to mind a funeral pyre, Matt. I mean, we ha- here we have this flame on top of the burial place, right? Like a funeral pyre. Um, and cleansing, in some ways, like a funeral pyre. But it's also like a reverse funeral pyre, right? Uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's not a flame. Nothing is being consumed. It's only being... What? Illuminated? Right? Is this like a beacon to draw... The kindly creatures is is this the the is this Tom sending up a beacon? For, uh, is this a kindly creatures beacon? Is that is that exactly what this is? Um, exactly, Amethorn. That's just what I was thinking. Highly visible to the kindly creatures who might want to come in and take their pick, right? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that uh, any unkindly creature would probably not would probably have a very different reaction, maybe, right? to that uh, uh, maybe this is it's kind of what we're seeing there but it's a it's a um, I find it it's it's very brief but I find it a rather remarkable description um, like we're seeing the cleansing action of the sun itself sort of reflected back off the treasure as the treasure itself is being purified Matt as with fire that's why I that's what, that's what I'm kind of coming back to with the whole funeral pyre thing right? Um, it's like a funeral pyre, except it's different, almost opposite, almost in a sense. Um, yeah. And Harnuth, exactly. It sounds like the sun is somehow causing the barrow bling to go away. Yeah. It's almost like it's being burned away by the sun, right? Uh, purified. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But okay. Down to the merriment of Tom and, uh, uh, and his ancient language. Um, I certainly have always understood this sentence to be one of those like kind of indirect statements of what, you know, when there are often times when, you know, Tolkien's narrators will say things like, and it is said that, or, and some have believed that, right? You know, those kinds of transitions. Um, and you know it's so it's, we're we're kind of hedging our bets here. I'm not not saying 100 percent sure that that happened, and yet it sounds sounds pretty sure in the end that that probably is in fact what happened. Um, I uh, I definitely uh, think that um, this is the description. This this is the answer, right? Um, why is Tom singing nonsense all the time? Right? Why all the hey doll, merry doll, ring a ding dillo? Um, this is why. 
Right. That what he is singing is an ancient language, a strange language unknown to the Hobbes, an ancient language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight. Um, Tony thinks that this is what the original language of the Ainur sounds like, quite possibly. Right, quite possibly. Um, thinking back to the Tree of Tongues uh, that Tolkien mapped out, that sort of initial language map, which is the real root of all of his stories. Uh, yeah, like the Valian language before Orome taught it to the elves, right? Um, yeah. And Lady Shmabiok, that's a really great point. Mary Dahl, uh, she says, is the English translation, right? Uh, so just as the hobbits aren't actually speaking in English, they're speaking in Westron, uh, and it's being translated for us into, into English, so Tom Bombadil's language, which is nonsense to the hobbits, right, is being rendered as English nonsense, right? Uh, words which sound like English and sound sort of familiar, to, but, but yet contain no meaning in English, right? So that hey doll, merry doll, ring-a-ding, dillo. We, we looked at that the very first time we looked at Tom Bombadil's poem, that there seemed to be concepts in there, like the ringing of bells in particular, right? Keeps coming up. Um, but yet, it's, it doesn't actually convey any information exactly, right? We, we can't interpret it uh, uh, in, any, in any clear sense. And yet, we do get a sense from it, right? The sense of merriment, in particular, the sense of delight uh, and celebration, right? That's what the ringing of bells in that context, and that is in the Tom Bombadil language, um, is clearly not the tolling of funeral bells, right? Uh, they don't go ring-a-ding-dillo, for instance. Anyhow, so so yes, Lady Shmabiok, I think you've got it exactly, that uh, the representation of Tom's language in the story is an attempt to to render its relationship, right? The relationship between what Tom says in English is like the relationship of what they hear uh, to to the West Drum. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Eric Hebb says, this is clearly the bombadilic branch of old Valoran, heavily influenced by the speech of river women, willow men, and badger folk. Yeah, I mean, you've got to think that Tom's language has been influenced over time, right? And uh, and likely. Or would he have influenced the language of others? Do the birds of the old forest speak a dialect of their avian speech, which is influenced by Tom Bombadil's language? I wonder... Right, you gotta think they do, right? Um. Anyway, uh, as I say, I, I I love I I love that sentence, and I love the fact that that sentence comes so close to the end of our time with Tom Bombadil. Right, like it's like the hobbits don't really get this. Um, their first reaction is, in a sense, patronizing. That's maybe not quite the right word, right? But their first reaction to Tom Bombadil is not he is way above them, but like he's just funny, right? He's weird. Um, and, you know, I mean, you got to wonder, like, is he all there, right? I mean, he seems seems kind of out there. Um, Frodo has that, you know, that intuition that he's a big deal, right? That's why he keeps asking, who are you? Um, but now at the end, 
it's almost like Frodo's kind of answering, beginning to answer his own question, right? Or, or to begin to understand intuitively, in a sense, what the answer to that question is, right? Um, no, all along he's been speaking an ancient language whose words were mainly those of wonder and delight, right? Um, his his caperings look odd, right? And his language sounds weird just because we've lost the capacity to understand that, right? And that now they finally, they finally see that just as they're about, uh, just they're about to, to leave them in the end. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Emma Thorne, I agree that Tom is a very unusual, um, mix of being totally carefree and yet well aware of the dangers of the world. Right. Um, yeah, it is really fascinating, right? Because you, you know, one is tempted to say the only way that you could be completely carefree is to be ignorant. Right. Surely. I mean, come on, you got to know the world isn't as happy as that, Tom. Right. Uh, you know, don't you know that people are suffering right nearby you? Don't you care? Right? I mean, Right. Those are questions to be asked about Tom and, and uh, you know, what Tom does and doesn't do. And yet it's clear he does know. Right. Think about his wistfulness, this sort of the touch of sadness as he's remembering the beautiful lady who once wore the brooch on her shoulder. Right. He is not untouched by tragedy and suffering nearby. Right. Um, but uh, but he doesn't allow it to bring him down, right? He doesn't allow it to compromise the wonder and delight with which he greets the world. Um, And that's interesting. I mean, of course, I think it's connected with the question that so many people often ask. Why does, why does he, why does he leave old man Willow alone? Right. Old man Willow is a problem. Old man Willow is corrupt. Why, um, why should, why should he let him be? Why doesn't he clean house, right? Take out the Barrow Whites. Take out Old Man Willow, right? Start an improvement project. And he he doesn't ever do that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Eric Hebb, I think it's a good way to think about it. Um, he does seem to have complete confidence in his self-imposed limits. Um, yeah, yeah. He is satisfied. He's content. He is. He is. And... I don't think there's any way that we should allow ourselves to talk ourselves into the idea that it's a bad thing, right? Or that he's bad because of it. Um, Yeah. They went forward steadily, but they soon saw that the road was further away than they had imagined. Even without a fog, their sleep at midday would have prevented them from reaching it until after nightfall on the day before. The dark line they had seen was not a line of trees, but a line of bushes, growing along the edge of a deep dike, with a steep wall on the further side. Tom said that it had once been the boundary of a kingdom, but a very long time ago. He seemed to remember something sad about it, and would not say much. What do you guys make of that? What's this dike? I have a pretty good guess. Right. At least I, I, I can only think of one real candidate. Um, and the one candidate I can think of has something sad to remember about it. Right. So uh, I think that that's uh, that seems that seems quite likely. Um, 
exactly, Erokeb. It's 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 almost got to be the boundary between Arthodyne and Cardolan. Um the boundary of the Arnorian one of the boundaries in the Arnorian civil war, right? And that's what's sad about it. Um it's the it's the result of the breaking of the kingdom of Arnor and the you know, the the nasty civil wars that followed, ultimately, of course, leading to the extinction of Cardolan and the death of people like the nice lady who wore the brooch, right? Um, uh, yes, exactly, Tony. I, I agree. I, I think this has to be the border of Cardolan, um, especially since we're told explicitly uh, in the appendix that this is a right, right around where the boundary of Cardolan was, right? So I think that it's fairly clear what that boundary has to be. And I think it's interesting that that's the line that they were seeing, right? They were, um, they thought it was the line of trees. He was hoping it was the road itself, right? It was trees that were lining the road. So that's what they were shooting for. Um, what he saw was not that, but it was in its way more significant, right? It, what he was seeing was this boundary, was the boundary of Cardolan. And I wonder if that means this is the boundary of the Barrow White's influence, right? Um, had they reached this point, would they have escaped the barrows? It makes it more sort of poignant that that is, in fact, the boundary that they could see uh, from the hill that they took their disastrous nap upon. Um, yeah. Lady Shmabiwak, I don't see any reason to suspect that Tom took a side in the Civil War. Um, I mean, again, we can see that he was friendly presumably, with uh, at least that one, you know, at least one uh, Cardolan citizen, um, that lady. But I, I, um, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any reason to think that he participated or took sides. Um, Is he like the ants on, on nobody's side? Well, yeah, but I don't think for the same reason as the ants, right? Treebeard says that he's not on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on his side, right? Um, That is to say, his job is to care for the trees, so he is entirely on the side of the trees, uh, and that's how he defines things. And since nobody else defines things in that way, that is, the, 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 the sides that Mary and Pippin are talking about are not defined on pro or anti-tree, on, on a pro or anti-tree basis, then Treebeard doesn't have a dog in that fight, right? Uh, so that's what he means when he says he's not on anybody's side. With Tom Bombadil, obviously, it's different, right? He, it's not that he... Uh, in a sense, it's almost opposite, right? T- Treebeard is on nobody's side because he is so very distinctly on the side of something, right? Tom Bombadil is not on the side. I guess he's on Goldberry's side, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting, Erechem. Erokeb says, if the dike is on the south, that is south of the road, I assume you mean there, right? It implies that the wall was built by Arthodyne, so the Dunedain who built it would be fencing Tom out of their land, as well as their brothers in Cardolan. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's another reason to think that this is an Arthodanian 
um, dike that they're seeing is the fact they could see it from a distance, right? So if it's a dike, so it's it's a, a wall that's been, and there are bushes along the top of it, right? If they're seeing it from behind, like there's, they're seeing the, 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 the land comes up and then drops into a dike, um, you know, they, they've, because the, the, they're coming down off the downs, right? So they're coming these these steep. So apparently they've they've cut away part of the downs there to make a wall. If you're looking down it, if it's uh, a wall that's facing north, right? So that you're trying to keep the people from the north from coming into Cardolan, then presumably you can't see it very well from the backhand side. It's just a row of bushes, which you wouldn't be able to see. Hugely wouldn't jump out at you from a distance, right? Um, whereas if they are seeing it from the other side, right? If it is a south-facing wall, right, designed to keep people from Cardolan out of Arthodyne, then it would be, with bushes on top, right, then it would be more visible from the south as they're looking down. So that kind of makes sense to me, right, that it would be that way. Um, and therefore it would, I don't know, I mean, fence Tom out, like he would be deterred by that, right? Uh, that's not going to happen. But still, symbolically, right, that the fact that, you know, right near, not on, but near the border of Tom's country, um, there's this wall meant to exclude folks from the direction of Tom's country, right? It's it's at the very least this sort of symbolic uh, sign of um, unfriendship from the North, which would be sad. Um yeah, exactly, Arnuth. Yeah, so the Great Road runs along the boundary between Arthodyne and Cardolan on the Arthodanian side, exactly, just north of the boundary dike. That that does seem to, to suggest that it, uh, I agree um, uh, with Aerocab, that that does seem to make it likely an Arthodanian structure there. But, I mean, it could be either way. I mean, uh, that doesn't prove it. Um, but still. That seems that seems sort of likely, um, and Catriona exactly the walls. Not the, no dyke is going to keep Tom out if he wants to go. Right, we've seen what he can do to walls if he has a mind, um, but um, but yeah, I, I think he would still be. It would still it would still make him sad to remember the division and to remember the the wars. Um, good, good. They rode down the bank and looked up and down. There was nothing to be seen. Well, here we are again at last, said Frodo. I suppose we haven't lost more than two days by my shortcut through the forest. But perhaps the delay will prove useful. It may have put them off our trail. The others looked at him. The shadow of the fear of the black riders came suddenly over them again. Ever since they had entered the forest, they had thought chiefly of getting back to the road. Only now, when it lay beneath their feet, did they remember the danger which pursued them and which was more than likely to be lying in wait for them upon the road itself. They looked anxiously back towards the setting sun, but the road was brown and empty. This moment really does feel like, you know, I, I called this slide resuming the story, right? Because it is, you know, as soon as they cross into the forest, they do this in order to avoid the Black Riders. You'll remember, remember the beginning of Frodo's dream in Crick Hollow, right? The night before they go into the old forest, and their, their chief concern is the Black Riders, 
right? Um, here's Fatty Bulger thinking they're dooming themselves by going into the old forest, and they're all saying, boy, better us than you, right? Sitting here waiting for Black Riders to come. The Black Riders are the whole story at that point. I mean, I mean it's like the ring and stuff, right? But the whole, the, the eluding the Black Riders is the whole deal, right? But as soon as they cross the forest, they enter into this other world. Um, and they're, they're still thinking about the Black Riders, especially evidenced by Frodo's dream of the galloping, or at least of Frodo's interpretation of the dream of the galloping, um, in which he is, you know, thinking about and imagining uh, the Black Riders coming upon us. It's not like he's forgotten about it entirely, but um, they're not, um, that's not their primary focus. They're too busy being almost killed by several other things. At this point, when they return, so they've left that sort of other world behind, the other world of the old forest and the Barrow Downs. And as soon as they return to the road, now it's like, and now we return to the story already in progress, right? Oh yeah, the Black Riders are after us. And they, uh, um, they, you know, return to, uh, to thinking about these things. Uh, shortcuts make long delays. Uh, Tony reminds us of Pippin's wise words, saying that Pippin is wiser than people give him credit for. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, I suppose we haven't lost more than two days by my shortcut through the forest. Well, there you go, right? <laughs> Way to look on the bright side, Frodo. Um, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, they looked anxiously back towards the setting sun, but the road was brown and empty. That strikes me really interestingly after um, after the Barrow incident, right? The whole west side and east side, right? So they're standing there looking to the west, which was the side of safety, the side of comfort, you know, the side of, uh, of goodness and light, right, uh, in the Barrow Downs. Now it's just the direction from which they think the Black Riders might gallop at any minute. Uh, they're, uh, uh, they're in a different sort of mental space here altogether. Um, yeah. No, they were two days, well, a day and a half at time. They were the one day, the first day in the old forest, right? And then it's it's nighttime, it's dark when they arrive at Tom Bombadil's house, and then they stay the entire next day at Tom's house. And then the, the third day after their departure, they take off and go, and then get captured in the Barrow Down. So this is the fourth day now. Uh, of their journey since they left Crick Hollow. Um, but when he says we haven't lost more than two days, they would have taken a couple days to get here anyway, even if they had taken the road the whole way, uh, is, uh, uh, is the point. Um, yeah, yeah. And I do think that Frodo is being deliberately, uh, I don't want, I don't want to say exactly comical, uh, but yeah, he knows they almost died, uh, that, uh, the shortcut, was a little bit disastrous. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Tony. So they lose the one day at Tom's due to, yeah, they, they have the rain delay at the house of Tom Bombadil, and then they have the Barrow incident. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the disastrous nap. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Do you think, asked Pippin hesitatingly, do you think we may be pursued tonight? 
No, I hope not tonight, answered Tom Bombadil, nor perhaps the next day. But do not trust my guess, for I cannot tell for certain. Out east my knowledge fails. Tom is not master of riders from the black land far beyond his country. All the same, the hobbits wished he was coming with them. They felt he would know how to deal with black riders if anyone did. They would soon now be going forward into lands wholly strange to them, and beyond all but the most vague and distant legends of the Shire, and in the gathering twilight they longed for home. A deep loneliness and sense of loss was on them. They stood silent, reluctant to make the final parting, and only slowly became aware that Tom was wishing them farewell, and telling them to have good heart, and to ride on till dark without halting. The last words of Tom Bombadil in the text are, Tom is not master of riders from the black land far beyond his country. Which is interesting, right? Out east my knowledge fails. Yeah, Tony, I was noticing the lack of capitalization on east there, too, right? Ugh. Yeah, I'm not sure what to do with that, with the pattern we were looking at with East and West and capitalization and stuff. Um, yeah, Eric had great point thinking about the definition of the word master, right? Especially in Tom Bombadil's uh, terms, right? In Tom Bombadil's mouth here. Um, uh, Tom is not master of riders from the black land far beyond his country. It goes without saying that he is not their authority, right? He's not the boss of them. Uh, that's obviously not the question. You know, uh, I, clearly he doesn't at this point have to say, don't worry, I'm not going to like rip off my mask and show that I was actually Sauron all along. Um, no, that's not what he's saying, right? So um, clearly it doesn't mean that kind of mastery. So Erokeb is suggesting that it means something along the lines of, I don't know how they operate, right? I haven't mastered, uh, I haven't achieved mastery in Black Rider, right? Um, be not because they're more powerful than he, not because of a limitation of his authority exactly, but just because they're outside his his realm, right? Uh, they're outside his area of expertise. They, they, he's not master of them. He's master of uh, he's he's master of his domain, right? He's master of the birds and the beasts and the uh, and and the the trees and everything. Um, not in that he owns them, but in that he knows them. He understands them, and he can tell the stories and help people to see things from their point of view. But he can't do that with Black Riders, right? He doesn't know them. He's not their master. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, exactly. Matt says his knowledge of what is happening rather than knowing about the Dark Lord. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Good. Yeah, exactly. Ambrosius Aurelianus was thinking similar things. Uh, he doesn't know the Black Riders in the same way he knows and is master of things in his own realm. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Tyra says it seems unwise for Tom to reassure them, considering how incautious the hobbits have been so far. Um Right. Well, 
Though there, he's not predicting their behavior. He is predicting the behavior of the Black Riders? Or what? Will he have heard some kind of tidings about their movements from birds or something? Right? Um, No, I hope not tonight, nor perhaps the next day. What is Tom based that prediction on, exactly? Why would he think they might... uh, what reason does he have for not thinking they're going to be pursued tonight? Right? It could be. Right? Um, Tony thinks that he knows that Strider is there listening. Right? Because, of course, Aragorn's present at this scene um, in the bushes. Uh, I like that idea. Uh, yeah. But um, Ambrosius, he does seem to be hazarding a prediction as to where the riders will be searching and how fast they'll be moving, right? If that's the case, he does seem to be suggesting, at least, that he knows their movements, their current whereabouts, right? Um, yeah. Though you're right, Fourth Dauntless, that he's qualifying himself pretty heavily here, right? But do not trust my guess, right? He does characterize it as a guess, but it must be a guess based on something, right? Is it based on just general foreknowledge? Right? Is he, instead of saying, based on the recent intelligence I have received from birds and trees, uh, the riders are not close enough to be able to get you today. Right? Or is he saying, I have, I do, I, I do not sense black riders in your presence for the next day or two, probably. Right? I'm not really, not really sure, actually, which one of those things is more likely. Tom Bombadil, really. Um, um, and yeah, Ambrosius, you're right that he still does advise them to ride on uh, without stopping, right? Uh, to be to be safe, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> right without stopping, and I mean it this time, JJ asks. Yeah, good. Um, well, we haven't quite gotten to the end of the chapter. Almost. Uh, we're like less than a page away from the end of the chapter, but this is actually a pretty good transition point. Uh, we're saying goodbye to Tom Bombadil. We've come to the end of Tom's country, uh, and uh, we will... Uh, um, Next time, of course, the the only thing that's left in the chapter is the final discussion between, uh, you know, Sam's commentary on Tom Bombadil, which will be fun. Uh, And, of course, they're talking about the Prancing Pony and anticipating Bree. So we'll be sort of segueing into Bree and the Prancing Pony um, uh, for for next. Um, Oh, okay. No, you're right. You're right. We do get one more speech from Tom. Let's let's look at that. Yeah. The last Bombadil poem. This is obviously where we should end. Okay, okay, we'll get here. Tom will give you good advice till this day is over. After that, your own luck must go with you and guide you. Four miles along the road, you'll come upon a village, Bree under Bree Hill, with doors looking westward. This is this, this is what they become aware that Tom is saying to them as he's departing, right? There you'll find an old inn that is called the Prancing Pony. Barlamin Butterbur is the worthy keeper. There you can stay the night, and afterwards the morning will speed you upon your way. Be bold but wary. Keep your merry hearts and ride to meet your fortune. 
They begged him to come at least as far as the inn and drink once more with them, but he laughed and refused, saying, Tom's country ends here, he will not pass the borders. Tom has his house to mind, and Goldberry is waiting. Okay. Um, I love this last piece of Tom Bombadilian semi-prose, right? It's presented as prose, but of course, as you can hear, uh, and I hope uh, I hope your ear has gotten more and more skilled at picking up and sort of reading Tom's meter in Tom's uh, Tom's speeches in Tom's meter, right? Um, but I love I just uh, you know. Four miles along the road you'll come upon a village, Bree under Bree Hill, with doors looking westward. There you'll find an old inn that's called the Prancing Pony. Barlam and Butterbur is the worthy keeper. It's like the most mundane prose he ever utters, right? This is just him giving directions, uh, telling them what they're going to see. Barlam and Butterbur is the worthy keeper. Like, if you think about that as a line of poetry, there's like nothing in it. It's completely mundane. And yet it still fits the meter. Uh, and I, I, I love how Tom's meter still just dances through these lines, which are again, like the most straightforward and simple that he, um, uh, th- that he delivers, right? Uh, though I, I do like how he sort of segues to a little sort of prediction, right? There you can stay the night and afterwards the morning will speed you upon your way. It's an optimistic <laughs> descript- uh, prediction, right? That the morning will speed them upon their way. Um, maybe, maybe not, right? But at least that was kind of the plan. That's how it was supposed to work. Um, And then the final advice. Be bold, but wary. Keep up your merry hearts and ride to meet your fortune. Right? Keep up your merry hearts is a really wonderful last piece of advice from Tom Bombadil. Right? Be bold, but wary is kind of elvish advice, right? Saying both no and yes. Uh, uh, be bold, but not too bold. Well, okay. That's uh, advice of dubious usefulness. You know, I'm not saying it has no application, but of dubious usefulness. Um, and uh, But keep up your merry hearts. That's more Tom Bombadilian advice, right? We have seen the kind of and this is an inappropriate way to describe it, but the kind of weapon that merriment is against the darkness, right? Against, uh, certainly against the, the Barrow Whites, as we saw. Um, and ride to meet your fortune is a really interesting thing for him to say too, right? Um, that he, uh, uh, he, like to meet your fortune, to go out to seek your fortune sounds like it's about money or something, right? Or at least about success. Uh, and this doesn't, I don't think this is about success. Exactly. This is about, uh, oh, hi, Erica. Uh, see, Erica just tuned in on Twitter there. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't think this is about money and it's not about success. I think this is about, you know, chance, if chance you call it, you know, that they are riding out to meet what is supposed to happen, right? The things that are going to be occurring, um, the fortune, it might be good fortune, it might be bad fortune, right? That they're going to be, uh, that they're going to be riding out to meet, but whatever be the fortune, uh, that they are going to encounter there, they, they should ride out to meet it. Right. And Tony, you're right. At least he didn't say doom could have been so much worse. Um, 
And uh, Gawandar, yes, I would think that this is fortune in the sense of in the sense of fate, like what 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 fortune, what really lies behind fortune, which is uh, which is providence and fate. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, and uh, I agree that uh, Tony, you were emphasizing that he says that uh, Tom's country ends here. He will not pass the borders, not not can't pass the borders. Right. Not that he's physically restricted, but he won't. He won't. And he's not tempted. Like, he's not going to. It's not like I might not or, you know, I usually don't, but I, Tom will not pass the borders. Um, why not, Tom? Tom has his house to mind and Goldberry is waiting. Right. Um, here's one of the things that I wonder. Can Goldberry travel? Is she tied geographically? Is she one of the spirits of the land there in the Withywindle Valley? Um, and as such is really bound to the land so that Tom could travel, but Goldberry can't. And that's why he won't move, because he's staying with Goldberry. Um, I don't know. Just a thought. Just a theory there. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, Tony, exactly. It does always come back to Goldberry, right? What else would be more fitting for Tom's last words, right? Then Goldberry is waiting. His uh, uh, acknowledgement that he's returning home uh, to Goldberry. Uh, and that's why he's not particularly tempted to go out drinking with the boys here. Um, yes, Goldberry is waiting is something he mentions a lot, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, Tony. Exactly. I was thinking of the spirit of Karathras when uh, I was mentioning that. That this concept that Tolkien seems to be, um, that he seems to be, uh, that Tolkien seems to describe spirits that are spirits of the land, right? Um, connected to the land. Um, does seem to be a thing in Tolkien's imagination, and Goldberry seems to be in that category. Um, I don't think that she can. I, I I would suspect that she she can't go anywhere else. Anyway, okay. All right. With that, so I I I did want to squeeze the end of Tom Bombadil. So we're two passages short, like three paragraphs or something like that from the end of the chapter, which is totally fine. Because like I said, that last conversation is the segue into Brie and it'll be, you know, so we'll start next time with Sam's reflections on Tom Bombadil and then his inquiries about the Prancing Pony uh, as we will begin to think towards Brie. So next time which is next week, because I will be here next week. I'm back here at home. I'm going to be traveling again the last week of February, the very, very end of February, but we should be good between now and then, unless uh, 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 adversity strikes between now and then. It's snowing here tonight, but uh, no power outage yet, so that's been good. Um, anyway, okay, so we will look forward to getting into the amazing... Uh, frontiers of chapter nine next uh, week at the sign of the prancing pony. So I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. We're going to switch over and do our field trip now. Uh, so for those of you who are following on Twitter, please do feel free to join us on twitch.tv slash signum you. And we will, uh, and we will move along. Thanks everybody. Okay. 
and very good now I will time to stretch out those of you who have been lounging around here in the uh, lore hall with us okay that's right time to oh, yeah let's work up the circulation here all right okay now that we've limbered up uh, we're gonna we're gonna head out so tonight I want to I want to return we were up in the north down so we're gonna come to Bree of course which is where we're standing um, but um, hey I have an idea uh, <laughs> let's go out they don't have that dike do they I remember looking for that dike and not really finding it the boundary that we were talking about hmm not sure Good evening, everyone. This is uh, Valori on as Kofi tonight. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for joining me. Okay. Um, let's let's uh, see, Dyke, you say? Yeah, I don't think I don't think the Dyke is there. There's some ruins there. Yeah, there's ruins, and the, there's the of course the natural drainage of uh, the little little creek there. Yeah. So let's let's meet out by the crossroads. Uh, first, we'll just we'll wait there for a minute to catch up with folks, and maybe investigate a little since we're there. Exactly. Then we'll look around there, and then we'll come in, and we'll we'll we're gonna head up to Esteldeen and and travel over from there again up towards Angmar. Um, having gotten the uh, overt reference to Karn Doom and Angmar here today. All right. So we'll. Hang out here for a second. See if anybody else is going to come join us, and then we will. I want to. I want to. I want to look at how they handle because see <clears throat> things like that. I mean, on the one hand, larger geographical points are often difficult for them to represent in game just because of the difference in scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's not too strange not to find something like that. But at the same time, when something is described in that kind of detail, there's often some kind of attempt to point to it or represent it. Um, so I just want to kind of look at how they handle that here on the road yeah, from Bream. Because internal game clock or not, you, you, it doesn't take us all day <laughs> to get to the paradigms from here. No, no, it, it sure doesn't. It sure doesn't. Good thing, too. That's that's where game using common sense over slavish authenticity is a good thing. Yes, yes. Not maintaining the scale, I think, was, was clearly a good call. All right. Okay, I think we're good. Let's just head over here because it's pretty much right here would uh-huh. be would be the boundary, or at least where they came out of the Barrow Downs. Now, do you recall like the exact definition of dike? I'm I'm kind of blanking on it. Well, I mean, a dike is just kind of a. It's like a a, a it's 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 like a wall, right? I mean, yeah. a dike was normally. I mean. Like one usage of a dike was uh, uh, to hold back water, mm-hmm. um, to prevent flooding from ocean or lake. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I've ever asked myself the question: How do you tell the difference between a wall and a dike? You know, like what exactly yeah, dike is the like difference? A, some sort of lee barrier or something. Yeah, generally. But yeah, this this could be it. I mean, this is a wall right here, and this is clearly. 
marking off the area. Yeah, this is kind of what I'm thinking, because this is definitely, this is the spot, right, where they come uh-huh. out. I mean, there are no bushes, exactly. You can't see it from the spire, but this is the path where you emerge out from the uh, mm-hmm. from the Barrow Downs. So it's got to be somewhere it's got seven around here. It's got stars on it. Right, and so here we do find, I'm, I'm finding myself in strange position. Okay. So when we do come down out of the Barrow Downs, there is this wall here, at least. And it is definitely an Ar- an Arnorian wall, and it does stretch along the south of um, um, it does so just south of the road. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be a boundary wall. Like It's not like there was a building here or something, right? Yeah, no. This is, this is, a, this is a barrier. Yeah. Barricade or something. Exactly, and it continues on through here, so that it came in. It, it took a corner here, but of course it would because this is the this is the road up here, right? There's the there's the the crossroads again. Um, so now we're here looking towards the Greenway South, and there we see there there it is again still. So here it would seem to be to have been. They seem to have envisioned it encircling the land here. I'm going to guess, based on what I'm seeing right here, that this was probably... they In the game, they seem to have imagined this as a Cardolan wall. Like uh-huh. a, a defensive... You know, in as much as the people of Cardolan were using the Barrow Downs as a, you know, fortress, right? It was their, their last refuge here. Um, uh-huh. And that they have built it up... Because it extends all the way around the corner there... Um, the, where we just were until the until it connects with the walls, right? Um, so it seems designed to defend against. And I know we're going to get into uh, ruffian territory down here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but it extends quite a ways down here, all the way down towards Adso's camp, we're still seeing uh-huh. that same wall, which is still not really a building yet, just a wall with some towers or something behind it. And this yep. is the, no, still not ending, right? Somebody oh, built a wall. Keep, like, you know, keeps going. Great Wall of China kind of length here. Well, yeah, I mean, if we look at the map, you know, so this wall is extended. Well, we're still, we're just past the western edge right now of the Barrow Downs, uh-huh. you know, coming up into the old we forest. See some of the, we see the fortress up there. What, up on the hill? Yeah, on the up hill. To, yeah, right, exactly. Um, and so that would presumably have been an Arthedanian fortress looking down... Oh, two. Two fortresses, yeah? Um, yeah. Yes. Yes, because we got the one up there and the other one up there. Well, yep. that's interesting. How do you get to that one? The r- one on the right? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean... I think you have to go around the back. Yeah? I'm not positive. There's that one on the island, too, that I finally figured out how to get to after, like, you know, trying for a year or something crazy. Yeah. The one, one in the brand one. All right, where is everybody? Sorry, uh, I'm getting distracted. Maybe we won't make it to Angmar at all after after all tonight. <laughs> Well, this is this relevant to what we were just exactly, reading. Exactly, so yeah, that's why I wanted it's to. It's fun to do it while it's still fresh in our heads, but where exactly are you? I'm kind of lost. Oh, sorry. I'm um, I'm at the ruins with the bears near them, 
to the west of the cabin, Bill Fernie's cabin. We're looking up. Oh, okay. We're looking up at the two ruins on the cliffs. One just to the north okay. of us. One just to the west of us. Okay. So you're near the wall. No, <laughs> I'm messing with you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I, I really, I've never been up at those ruins up the hill. You want to see if we can do it? I'm kind of keen to find them because they look kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, you never know if it's something that's insurmountable around here. Yeah. You can get there, right? Sounds like people think we can uh, get there. I don't remember. I don't remember if I've been up there. <laughs> it's a little fuzzy. Outlaw's Haven. Well, let's see. We can zigzag. This is sort of a switch back up the hill here. Right. So what... Up the closer one. Oh, wait. So these are the okay. Hillshire ruins, huh? I just mm-hmm. just triggered just like the, the ruins deed. Gel- the deli meat, right? Right, exactly. Uh, okay, so we have to go okay, up this go way, ahead. right? Yep. Yeah, you got to go up the um, the the what is it the, uh, the 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 western face. The western face has a switchback road that'll take you up. Right. Okay. All Follow right. the path, and then there's just I'll stand by the lone tree. Okay. Sounds all cryptic, doesn't it? Right. Cryptic and junk. Follow the switchback and head for the lone tree. All right. Now that is very imposing, however. Okay. Which, Though it does look like yeah. there's a trail. Tell oh, me, oh, you know no, where you're aiming, no. man. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I yeah. And I know the visuals on the stream are delayed so that doesn't help yes because because oh, we because we've got to cross the river yeah yeah what? Oh. No, what river yeah what are we talking about river oh you're going for the wrong one i was going for the earlier one you're going for the big one i haven't done that one yet oh yeah I'm no i'm the, going for the big one i'm at yeah. the proper hill sharoons you know oh yes oh no sorry we went the yeah. other way i want to go for the big castle on the hill which looks super hard to get to <laughs> Okay, so we come up here. Now we keep going, right? I keep messing up my camera angle. Okay, all right. So I'm going to confidently follow. Whom am I confidently following? Who is this? Follow, follow me so you have a green dot. Pontin, okay, yeah, Pontin, yeah. He was in the Discord okay. chat telling us that we could get there. So, yeah. okay, all right, here we go. We're going backwards and forwards. Now we're getting up higher and higher up. I have never been here in my life. I never went here. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. Here we are. Hillshire ruins right here? Uh, I don't even know which ruins these are meant to be. Oh, good gravy. It's Ostbarandor. <laughs> That's what it is. Okay, I'm not there. I am at the Hillshire ruins. Ostbarandor. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, no, we had to cross the river and the whole nine oh, yards yeah. here. So, yeah, no, you were at the mysterious ruins I kept trying to find. Yes, the mysterious ruins. Mysterious. 
All okay. right, I think I remember how to get up there. I'll, I'll meet you up there. All right. Well, we're seeing lots of standard Arnorian ruin stuff, lots of seven-pointed uh-huh. stars, the uh, little capitals with um, with the with the cluster of five seven-pointed stars on it. We've got the scepter of Anuminus at the keystone. We've even got our mysterious branches of what may or may not be Athalas. As far as I know, there are no quests up here. That's the part that kills me, because I'm up here and I'm looking around for rings, I'm looking around for area quests, I'm looking around for all these things to yeah. do, there's nothing to do up here, and I'm like, so why is it here? And it gives us a, you've discovered Ask Barandor, but it doesn't um, it doesn't even show up as a flag on the map. No. Who was this made for, and why is it here? Like, in both senses of the, the question, you know? Right. Ooh. Oh, it's a bush. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Ost Barandur. Here I am. Okay. All right. Here I am. There we are. All right. So now we're looking down on those piddling little ruins where the uh, where the yeah. bandits are. Mm-hmm. And that it's across the... It's hen up here. Look at this. Yeah. This is great. Okay. So we can see... This all... is a... All of the this is definitely a king's seat up here. Yeah. Okay, so there is... You can see the line of the road. Yep, there's the line of the road. Uh-huh. And there's the baronet. Look, we can see the spire. You can see dead spire from here. Oh, interesting. So, Because those are the barodowns within their like ring of hills. And I'm pretty uh-huh. sure that's the standing stone we can actually see from here. Uh, let me turn up my graphics so I can confirm. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, yeah, I think that's probably a high no, graphics resolution No, I remember when I had thing. my graphics turned down, I found some interesting things you didn't see. That's true. That's true. What can we see over in the Shire direction? There's another tower. I'm not quite looking in the Shire direction. I think those that's, hills... Is that the stock tower? No, that's too close for the stock tower. I think because... Yeah, it's not across oh. the river. Um, okay. Across, I, th- I think those hills. Isn't that the? Isn't that the brandy wine that we're seeing? Yeah, that is the brandy wine we're seeing. That tower is that tower up on the hill where that wounded ranger is. Oh. Is that, you know, I can't say. Is that over there? And then I think. It's I very think, wooded. Well, that's the midwater marsh on that side. Or somebody uh, help our friend here who's running away and being attacked by oh, a baby yeah. bear. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, danger averted. Yeah, you can okay. see the graphics are a little. Yeah, the graphics are a little fuzzy. Careful, there's some holes in this. Yeah. Exactly. Edifice here. So I'm thinking. Well, yeah, you can. See, I think yeah, we could just see, see the uh, river. Mid, yeah, you can see the not midwater. You can see the um, the the marshes down there. The near needle hole. That I think that is. No, that's got to be too far away. Because I think those hills. Yeah, no, you're right. That is Needlehall. Yeah, yeah. I think you're that's, right. yeah. No, that's the that's the. I'm trying to think. That's outside Brandywine, which all the slugs are. It's a different area. Yeah. Of all the slugs. Yeah. Um, that. Um, oh, you see the bridge. This tower is is that the tower with the giant? <sighs> Maybe. I thought this was the t- no. That was on an island, wasn't it? 
I don't remember. I only did the giant quest once, so. Yeah, me too. I, I thought remember. it was around here, actually. Oh, is he? Oh, yeah. For yeah, it was like it was like edging close to even dim on the Shire side of things. Yeah. Um, well, you can, you can see the the um, the bridge at stuck over there. I think you could, yeah, it's like just behind the trees. Yeah, I can't really make out. I'm looking for any sign of the Brandywine Bridge. Maybe it's yeah, behind I think the that trees is the here. Yeah, I think I see the Brandywine Bridge, but it's it's very much obscured by some trees. Yeah. Let me see. If, is it different on my horse? Yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can see little bits of it over a cluster of green trees, like right near it. Yeah. Yeah, you can see the you can see the the Brandywine going under it, and then there's the little bits of the bridge sticking up. Okay, so. Oh, and then of course we so we have the old forest straight to the south of us, and uh -huh. then you can see the Barrow Downs over there. Uh -huh. So you can easily. Uh oh, it looks so our much friend the foresty up here. Our, our friend the bear is back. Yeah, there we go. Oh, mean old bear. Thank you, thank you to the anti-bear squad. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it it does look very foresty from up here, but at the same time you can sort of see the strategic layout a little bit better from here, right? Um, it still looks like a maze to me. <laughs> right. But, I mean, so okay, so if you're Cardolan, right, and you've holed uh -huh. up in the Barrow Downs for obvious reasons, I mean, there's some obvious downsides of holing up in the Barrow Downs, like on account of their being haunted with the unquiet dead. But apart from that, it's well, very advantageous. Canyon, right? too, you know? Well, right. Exactly. I mean, it's it's fairly secure, and you could see why in the game they chose to make that dike, because I, I do think that that wall is the dike that they saw, and the gap that the path comes uh -huh. down in um, uh -huh. is, what they're, is, what, is what they're looking for. Um, so yeah, that does seem to have been within the game world conceived of as the boundary that Cardolan threw up against Arthodyne coming in. Um, which you know, I don't think is impossible. I mean, I don't. The fact that it's to the south of the of the road might even perhaps suggest that um, that it was built by them. But I don't know. I mean, I still think I like the 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 reading that it's more visible from the south because uh, it was you know designed to repel the people from Cardolan from coming north. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, okay, all right. Oh, so that we we are at the giant. The giant is right around the corner behind us back there. Okay. Oh, okay, cool. All right. So I must have then been up here at one point or other. So I think I see the big bald hill in, in the old forest too. The one with the, you collect the sap. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> I see a bald hill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it looks a little far away from the Shire side. You'd think that I would mm -hmm. think that the bald hill would be closer, but then again, the way that the land falls off there could be kind of over that ridge. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so of these ruins, the one that in retrospect is sort of most puzzling, so like that tower over there looks like it could yeah. be a, you know a watchtower, and one of the watchtowers even you know looking down, probably one of the watchtowers looking down on the Brandywine. Um, uh -huh. You know, so that's uh, that makes sense. This fortress makes a whole ton of sense. I mean, it was pretty tough getting up here, and this is a heavily defensible position, not to mention an excellent vantage point as well. So you've got to think that this is Arthedanian, yeah, right? So 
Yeah, a couple of deadfalls and a few archers, and nobody would be able to get up here. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then <clears throat> that other fortress, kind of lesser fortress, right? That's down the ridge from us over there. Um, the Hillshire one. Yeah, exactly. The one with the brigands in it now. Um, mm -hmm. That's more accessible. That looks like it could be a sort of a forward... I mean, this is a this is a heavily defensible position to fall back to, but it's not like you'd want to have this be your advanced base of operations because you have to go all the way down and cross the river to get over there. So um, it, it's... You could see why, if that's Arthedanian too, why the Arthedanians would want that. But the one down in the valley, the Hillshire ruins down in the valley there are the ones that are... Oh, mm -hmm sort of more puzzling. That looks like, unlike the other one across the way, unlike the dike across the way, that this was actually a building. Um, mm -hmm. You even have a what, what looks like the ruins of a colonnade down there. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Oh, here, Boomfa wants to see the map so we can see where we are here. Storage? Down. Yeah, there we are. Um, Could be... Storage. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, uh, it could conceivably, I suppose, be for an, uh, from another period of time. I mean, the people of Cardolan didn't make it for that long. So, you know, it's possible that they, uh, you know, once the threat from Cardolan was gone, that a more peaceful structure was built down in the valley. Um, mm -hmm. while Arthurdane still controlled the, the fact this that place. It's completely destroyed does sort of indicate that it, Met a horrible end. Right, right. <laughs> well, this place up here seems mostly just destroyed by trees. Right, exactly. Yeah, no. The, the 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 way in which this ruin is infested by trees and bushes is unusual. You don't usually see a uh, a, a a solid stone floor like this with trees, you know, big pine trees growing up in the middle of it like this. That's going to be my house if my husband doesn't take care of the garden. <laughs> Understandably. I don't see any other indicators or anything unusual about any of the iconography around but, but here. But you're right about this one being far apart from the other structures. This is definitely where you delegate what's yeah, going on exactly. while you're looking at it. Exactly. Scepter, stars, scepter, stars. Yeah. Stars and scepters. Where's the giant? He's down, down back around. He's in a cave. He's not in. I don't think he's in a man-made structure. Right. Where's the giant? And the vine motif. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have the quest or anything, so I don't know where he is. Uh, this one. He's up on a hill, and he's got. It looks a lot like that giant thing we did on the Misty Mountains trial. The in the Misty Mountains trail, okay, right. Remember the giants? They had the they have like their little huts and they got the little like skin tent flaps sort of stretched over things. Right. So it kind of looks like that. And for people who have the quest, there's going to be a backpack and it's going to be glowing. Right. Another random oh, ruin in the middle of woods. Wow. Yeah, and it's like the the oh I think no that's a that's a gazebo. Yeah, there's an artichoke gazebo around here, isn't there? Oh yeah, it is an artichoke gazebo. I think someone mentioned that. Yeah, there was this, an artichoke is the, gazebo this is the this is the this is that artichoke gazebo that was mentioned. Yes. All oh, right. Yeah, this one up here. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I see the giant's face. See the fire light up ahead? Uh, I think so. But first, there it is, there it is. the artichoke. Uh, he's got gazelle. a little bit of ruins here. Oh, this but is yeah. The rest this is, looks like something he put together. This is a classic artichoke gazebo because it's got the, it's got the statue, up on top. Oh yeah. Just like the others. Is All it right. the same one? It says it missing its same pieces. Ah. Uh, I'm hard. I'm having a hard time getting the right angle on it to be able to see much of that statue because it's uh, up on top of the oh, hill. Oh yeah. Here. Too much foliage. Yep, yep, same one. Guy holding a staff, no head. And okay. it almost looks like monk's robes. Here you go, Svalfang. Like, yeah. Alright, oh, he's just a, right, he's a stone giant. Rock throwing stone giant. Right, with the big cave. Yep, just like the this is just like the, the giants in the giant houses down in um Enidwyth. Notice the stone of his house is completely different. Mm hmm. Yeah, he must have schlepped that stone a long ways. But. Oh, backpack's going. Apparently, I have this quest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I gotta give the the pack to Dob Sandheaver. That's a great name. Yes. Well, Sandheaver, one of the Hobbit names that we're. that is explicitly mentioned. Sorry, I'm looking around at the horizon trying to get my bearings here on where we are relative to where we were before. In the woods is where we are, these pine woods. There's the river, right? You can just see the river through the trees. There goes the giant again. Is that one tree up on the hill? I think that goes, yeah, that goes to even dim over there, right? Yes. I see some. I see some structure that might be Oatbarton. Uh, yeah, in that direction. It looks like a looks like some sort of farm storage, and a field. <laughs> yeah, Boomfo. I'm sure the giant was thinking, "Oh no, not again!" Just like the bowl of petunias. <laughs> uh. Yeah, if we knew what that meant, we'd know a lot more about giants. <laughs> right. Ooh, his belt is actually kind of impressively carved. He's not wearing oh, yeah. he's not wearing many garments, but the ones that he is wearing are it almost looks Rohirrim. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. I also am kind of wondering about the colonnade here. Oh man, he just regened in a heartbeat that time. Yeah, I seem to recall that too. Yeah. I, I think I, I defeated him just in time to get killed by him again. <laughs> right. My first guy. Right. It does make you wonder though, what did the Arnorians do here? I mean, there's not too much oh. left. There's just the colony. Another good vantage point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe somebody had a summer home here. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's well, the, uh, it's quite also lovely. Timber's very useful. Right. This is this would be an adequate place for uh, for lumber supplies. It would be kind of a fancy lumber camp, but. 
That's where the princes are sent to lumber camp. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. I want to know where he got the stone for his house from. It's totally different. Yes, it is true that I kill for the Pale Dwarf. I forgot that he worked for the Pale Dwarf. Um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, it does look as if the Arnorian stone could have been quarried from somewhere quite near here. You know, that, that, that you know yellowish-brown stone that we mm-hmm. see. That we're standing on, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, his stone is different. Show off. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it is getting late. This is actually fun to get a chance to explore the geography of this area. Look, we are almost in Bree. See, we did the field trip almost in Bree, too. <laughs> I still plan to return to the North Downs as we're going to get to the Prancing Pony, but I don't even know if we'll get enough of a description of the Prancing Pony in the next uh, uh, in the next class to justify going into Bree and going to the Prancing Pony. But maybe we will. We'll see. Maybe um, we can bug the gatekeeper. Yeah, so maybe we will we'll, we'll probably look around a little bit in Bree. Uh, but in any case, we'll also continue. I want to go up into Angmar because that just following our geographic, exp- our non-text-based geographic exploration, uh, that's where we are. So we'll continue with that probably next time. But anyway, I look forward to next week getting into Chapter 9. Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Good night. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.